0: Hello and welcome to Oxford Policy Pod, based out of the University of Oxford's Blavatnik School of Government. I'm your host, Sruti Palaniapin, and this week we're tackling a very timely issue, freedom of speech in an age of social media. In the wake of the Capitol Hill riots on January 6th, several social media companies took an unprecedented action, banning then-president Donald Trump from their platforms. This decision has spurred much conversation on whether and when limitations to online speech are justified. Once again, we are reminded of the huge power these companies hold in deciding who can speak, what they can say, and whom it will reach. The past few years have seen social media giants making greater attempts to regulate content on their platforms, largely in response to government pressure and popular backlash. Many have called for social media companies to take responsibility for the role they play in facilitating the spread of mis- and disinformation, hate speech, and incitement to violence. Social media has never been a free-for-all, but as user bases increase and politicians follow suit, the management of our access has become increasingly complex and increasingly salient. These sites are primary sources of news for many, so where the red lines are drawn around content affects citizens like never before. And who should be drawing these lines? Governments, independent oversight boards, or social media companies themselves? As they stand, content moderation policies from social media sites are broad and vague for a reason. Definition is difficult and incredibly context specific. So how can social media companies preserve free speech while also upholding the public interest? And what are the values behind this complex debate? There aren't clear answers yet, but today we'll speak with two experts to unpack some of these questions. Welcome to Oxford PolicyPod.
1: The whole history of liberalism and liberal democracy is based on that premise that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Human
2: rights should be at the basis of of all the decisions that we're going to be making about how to deal with these spaces, these online spaces.
1: The only truly coherent model of internet regulation in the world today is China's, and it's the one of absolute state control, if you like, the internet without freedom.
2: Context is everything
1: with speech.
0: Our first guest today is Timothy Gartanash. He is a professor of European studies at the University of Oxford, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, and the author of several books, including Free Speech, 10 Principles for a Connected World. Timothy Gartanash also writes a weekly column on international affairs for The Guardian and is a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books. Professor Gartanash, thank you for joining us.
1: It's very nice to be with you.
0: So last month, after the storming of the U.S. Capitol and Twitter's decision to ban Donald Trump, you said you were worried about the permanent character of that decision, but that you still didn't have a definitive position yet. So now, one month later, what is your take on Twitter's move?
1: So the American humorist H.L. Mencken said that to every complex problem, there's a solution that is clear, simple and wrong. And that's true in this case, because it's a very complicated issue these platforms are not like newspapers or broadcasters. They allow us, the users, to communicate with each other. Um, so there are two issues here. One is the actual decision. I think it was right to take him down until the end of his presidency because he was inciting to violence against the capital. But I think it was wrong to take him down permanently because he's a major political figure. And the whole point at the heart of the First Amendment tradition in the U.S. is defending political speech, the freedom of political speech. That's issue number one. Issue number two is a much bigger one, which is who should take this decision? So at one extreme, you have the idea that Mark Zuckerberg should take all these decisions. And that's clearly wrong. We immediately feel it to be. The other extreme, you have people like Angela Merkel or the Polish government who are saying, no, 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 the national government should take the decision. But the trouble with that is that's exactly what Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping would love to hear, because they want to reassert the control of national governments over the entirety of speech online. And that's why I think we actually have to seek a more complicated middle way In between those two extremes, either Zuckerberg does it or the government does it.
0: Yeah. And you wrote in your latest column in The Guardian about encouraging these leading democracies such as the US, the UK and the EU to coordinate and implement policies to regulate big tech and tackle, among other issues, misinformation in the digital space. So then what type of policies do you imagine them to implement? And when we're thinking about this balance between government and tech actually moderating this content, how much of the responsibility should be shouldered by governments to regulate these companies versus the companies themselves kind of assuming a pseudo-editorial responsibility? Because at the end of the day, as you said, someone does have to be the arbiter.
1: So there are at least two different issues there. One is democracies versus dictatorships. The only truly coherent model of internet regulation in the world today is China's. Um, And it's the one of absolute state control, if you like, the internet without freedom, certainly without freedom of speech. And the democracies are all over the place on this, everyone trying something different. So the first thing is, and This is very much in the spirit of the Biden administration. We need to bring the democracies together, starting with the EU and the US, to try and get something like a a common position, because otherwise you're going to have 80 different regimes, which is no good at all. And this goes to the second point, Shruti, which is these are giant near monopoly companies. I call them the private superpowers. We haven't seen anything like this in history. It's a privately owned public sphere. And it needs a combined weight of, of the biggest and richest democracies in the world to impose a regulatory framework. What should that be? It's a number of things. First of all, there should be more competition because monopoly is always bad and particularly bad for speech. Uh, Secondly, uh, people shouldn't be allowed to break the law, wherever what the law is in a democracy online. But thirdly, with a question like whether Trump is left up or taken down, I really think we have to look for a hybrid model. What is that? So you have, in the case of Facebook, you have this thing called the Oversight Board, which has the former editor of The Guardian on it, a former Um, European court judge on it, uh, major figures from different continents, uh, former Danish prime minister, a whole bunch of different people with with great different experience and expertise. And uh, decisions made by Facebook can be appealed to them. And Facebook committed itself to implementing their decision if they say you were wrong.
0: And... On this note of how companies should think about moderating content, I want to repeat something that you once wrote. You said that, quote, we cannot get at the truth unless we are exposed to the relevant facts, opinions, and arguments. Even false ones may contain a sliver of truth or provoke us to clarify our own as we respond to them. So can you take a moment to explain more about what you mean by this? Do you think open political debate is more effective than banning politicians or moderating content in this goal of combating mis- and disinformation?
1: The whole history of liberalism and liberal democracy is based on that premise, that sunlight is the best disinfectant, actually all the way back to ancient Athens. Uh, it, in, the, in the U.S. tradition, we talk about the marketplace of ideas, that uh, even Uh, a false argument or a false statement uh, provokes we who are defending a a fact-based statement or a more coherent statement to defend it more forcefully. Uh, John Stuart Mill said, you know, the good sword of truth will get rusty if it's not challenged from time to time by a falsehood. So that's an absolutely core principle of, of, of democracy altogether. But the, the underlying assumption is that we're all in the shared marketplace and we hear the repeating arguments. And the problem now is that we're all going off to different marketplaces. And the great example of this is the United States, where essentially the public sphere has separated out into, roughly speaking, a Democrat public sphere and a Republican public sphere. And people who watch, people who watch MSNBC, listen to NPR and read the New York Times, get one reality Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, right-wing websites and blogs, and you get a completely different reality. And that's extremely dangerous for democracy.
0: Yeah. So then when we are living in these alternate universes, and you're still looking to restore that public sphere, as you note, how is that possible? If we, I mean, if we can't even agree on what the truth is, that set of verified facts that everyone should be able to get it behind... How can we ever have that type of deliberative process again? Do you think that it is possible? And in the case of the current ecosystem, isn't the only option to still moderate content in the ways that people are thinking about?
1: I'd be wonderful if you could bring back public service broadcasting. Really important to start in schools because a lot of the problem is that people don't go looking for the different views. If you've educated people in the importance of going looking for different views. Maybe they'll go on doing so. And then a really important point. You've been talking about content moderation. That is, what do the platforms leave up and what do they take down? That is not the most important thing the platforms do. The most important thing the platforms do is the algorithmic selection of content to maximize engagement. And what maximizes engagement is what is more spectacular, more horrifying, more extreme. And so really to get at that problem, you've got to get at the algorithmic selection of the content by the platforms and not just that tiny, tiny sliver, uh, which is content moderation.
0: Yeah, I I see what you're saying. And to push on that earlier quote that I stated about having the space for open political debate, are you concerned at all that there still could be more harm than good if there aren't any restrictions on speech that does seek to misrepresent and misinform? Because as we know, the truth isn't always winning out in this marketplace of ideas without any safeguards in place.
1: So free speech doesn't mean totally unlimited speech. And what we can argue about is whether we don't need to make those protections stronger. So if I may just give an illustration, in the US First Amendment tradition, the classic test for incitement is the so-called Brandenburg test. It goes back to a famous court case, Brandenburg versus Ohio, and it says the violence has to be intended, likely, and imminent. Okay, now, frankly, what Trump did On January the sixth, almost meets that test. If go off, we got to fight. Go off to the capital, but a lot of stuff that is online, for example, really persistent denigration, dehumanization of particular minorities, the Rohingya in Myanmar, Burma, for example, cumulatively has the effect of inciting to violence. So I think there's a, there's an area there that we have to look at quite carefully, but I don't think that challenges the basic principle that sunlight is the best disinfectant.
0: Okay, but we know that countries also have very different laws, as you just mentioned, and also perspectives on what is and is not considered hate speech, what is and is not considered uh, misinformation as well, even at times. So how then should these companies operate when they are global and have to kind of meet the demands of these countries with very different ideas on these various topics that we're discussing.
1: So I've actually spent several days at Facebook headquarters looking at how they do content moderation. Um, And it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, you're in the headquarters of a superpower, and they spent a lot of time making very, very small decisions. Um, there's a lot about nudity and wh- when is a nipple allowed on, on, on Facebook or not, and uh, which particular word is allowed. Basically, there's a, a twin track at the moment. Uh, they have to abide by national laws in the nation concerned, right? So if you access it from an IP address in India, you have to obey the Indian law. But what they're fighting to defend is that outside that. National IP space, it is actually one platform, one privately owned public sphere. And I support that because I believe that's actually a huge gain, particularly for people in unfree countries, but also people in oppressive communities. I remember meeting a young a poet in Myanmar who said to me, you know, under the dictatorship, I have another life in another country. That country is called Facebook. So I think they're right to defend that, you know, one large global public sphere. And this is where we go to the oversight board model, where they set transparent rules, they Facebook, but then there's appeal to an independent authority.
0: And I want to ask on a different note, a question about how the actual position of a speaker may shape some of these considerations surrounding moderation. So how do you think... Harmful speech, that is, we're talking about hate speech, misinformation, disinformation from all people should be treated in comparison to those who are public figures or politicians. Do you think those people should be held to a higher standard?
1: It's a tricky one, that, isn't it? Because ethically and socially and culturally, of course, they should be held to a higher standard because they have more reach. But on the other hand, that the principle of democratic politics is that people choose their own representatives. So if tens of million p- people like tr- what Trump is saying, that's a, a major democratic fact. Um, I think there's a another category we haven't mentioned, Trudy, which is really important, because you mentioned hate speech. There's a lot of work now on a category called dangerous speech, and that's a really important category, because what's dangerous depends on context.
0: Yeah. And then how do you apply that, though, to this conversation on how public officials should be treated? Because they are also often the ones in contexts where they have that type of power to incite some sort of action.
1: Yeah. So almost all liberal states make a distinction between public figures and private figures. And generally, there is in some sense, more license for public figures for the reason I gave that this is part of the democratic public sphere. Uh, Unless it is direct incitement to violence, which is illegal in every liberal democracy in the world, my view is broadly that they should be held to account by politics and society rather than by the law.
0: So even something such as rampant spreading of misinformation. I mean, we saw even with Trump, so many false statements made about vaccines and about COVID. And those things are also extremely detrimental to people's ability to live and their health. So how do you think about those issues also in relation to public figures, even beyond hate speech?
1: Right. So, so there's, I mean, there's a bunch of issues there because first of all, you know, The anti-vax propaganda coming from a public figure is dangerous speech, right? If a large proportion of our population thinks vaccines are dangerous and isn't vaccinated, that more people will die as a result. So that's dangerous speech. But beyond that, a lot of the issues around misinformation and disinformation are actually more technical ones and algorithmic ones and editorial ones right so they're about whether you um whether the misinformation appears in the top 10 search results or way down at number 47. Um, whether certain bots which have their origins in say moscow or beijing are treated as if they were real people They're those sorts of issues rather than a kind of ethical choice leave it up or take it down
0: yeah, I know we will have many more conversations on this topic in years to come. This issue is not going away, but we really appreciate your time and your thoughts today, Professor Garton Nash. Thank you for being with us. Great pleasure. Now, to further explore this discussion, we have Oxford Policy Pod correspondent Laura Katcha, who is joined by Nani Jansen. Nani is a human rights lawyer who specializes in strategic litigation and freedom of speech. She is the founding director of the Digital Freedom Fund, which supports partners in Europe to advance digital rights through strategic litigation. She is a recognized international lawyer and expert in human rights litigation, responsible for standard setting freedom of expression cases across several national and international jurisdictions. Nani also lectures at Columbia Law School and is an adjunct professor at Oxford University's Blavatnik School of Government. Laura, Nani, this is definitely a complex and controversial discussion with great implications for our democracy and also for the future of social media companies. Nani, what
2: is your initial take on this debate? Thank you. Uh, It it is indeed a a hotly debated uh, topic. There there are many different sides uh, to this uh, story. I think... um, One of those is uh, the question about the timing of this decision. Uh, It was very interesting to see only a few days uh, before uh, before President Trump was about to leave office uh, to see social media companies basically stumbling over each other uh, to deplatform him because it wasn't just Twitter, right? It was also Facebook and a number of other uh, social media uh, companies that decided to... um, uh, or deactivate uh, his accounts. Um, one of the big questions uh, there is is the timing of it all, besides kind of the political aspect, which I was just kind of like pointing to, there's a question as to whether or not they should have waited this long in the first place, right? Um, was it really necessary to wait until actual violence was taking place, so the storming of the capital etc, or should they have taken action sooner um basically in all the stages kind of like leading up to 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 that fact um, and um there are good reasons obviously to kind of like give a head of state uh more leeway um for their expression and and to try and not de-platform them one of the main reasons at least under public international law being that you're supposed to give more leeway to to political speech right the idea being that um those who are in politics um, should be able to, to freely share their ideas so that there can be a robust debate and that, that we, uh, as those who elect them, uh, have a chance to inform ourselves of their opinions, of their views, and therefore make you know uh, well-informed choices in elections, etc. But um, if, you, if you look at the way that uh, speech of specific groups... Is being policed uh, online, and then uh, I'm referring uh, to to marginalized groups, to racialized groups, etc., uh, where there's basically pretty, you know, quick censorship uh, for completely innocent uh, means of expression, and you see the degree to which uh, former President Trump <laughs> has been expressing himself. Um, very hostile very uh and you know a lot of speech that could actually be considered as uh, as incitement um, you have to kind of like really ask the question where where do you really want to draw the line uh, as a platform and having made that choice so very late um might have some symbolic value but it might actually have the wrong symbolic value uh given the lateness uh, of the decision um then there's another aspect to it, and which is um, kind of the, the question, what kind of precedent does this set in other places, right? Where um, there are uh, regimes in place that overall uh, like to curtail the speech of those who are critical of, of those who are in power. Um, and if <laughs> you basically can refer to uh, the president of the US uh, having been taken offline uh, virtually, um that, of course, uh, gives you, you know, a lot of more authority to kind of like do the same um, in, in other settings. So there are a lot of different dimensions uh, here that make this yeah, a pretty complicated issue.
3: That's really interesting. And especially when you touched on the issue of international law protecting uh, public individuals in the platforms. That, um, so I actually I had a, a thought about that. Um, many of these social media sites uh, make distinctions in their content policies between private and public individuals, as you've mentioned. So Twitter adopted a public interest framework in 2019. Facebook announced in 2016 that they would consider whether or not posts are important to the public interest before removing them from the site from violating community guidelines. But there's there's a little bit of a difficulty that we've been talking about, at least in our MPP c- community, about how uh, Twitter polices public individuals who aren't in their particular line of sight, essentially, in the US. So they say in their in their Twitter, say, at least in their public interest framework, that they'll err on the side of leaving content up if there's a clear public interest in doing so. So but they may, as we seen with Trump, flag misleading content. But this global policy has arguably not been applied globally in an equal way. Just speaking to some of our uh, cohort members, anecdotally, we're hearing how public leaders outside of America are not receiving the same scrutiny for violation of content rules. Some examples uh, include the Foreign Affairs Minister, Taney Loxson from the Philippines, or Nicolas Maduro from Venezuela. So my question is, is Trump here in being banned from the platform just an exception? Or do you think there's maybe a risk of an american centric approach to this kind of enforcement?
2: So the issue as to whether or not um, kind of content moderation and content removals are are u s centric is uh, is again connected to a, a great a great deal of issues uh, for one um there's an issue with um, the internet in and of itself being very um, western. Focused, if I can put it that way. Um, if you look at the content that we have online, it actually doesn't really reflect uh, its user base, right? Uh, so that's something to kind of like always think about as well. Um, that overall, that you know, the, the the pages that we see, the the information that we see, the languages in which we see um, uh, information online, doesn't actually really reflect the user base of the of the internet worldwide. Um, the problem is, of course, that a lot of the uh, social media companies that, that, that we use and that are used uh, more broadly across the globe, though there, are, of course, uh, are regional differences and, and very localized platforms um, in a number of countries as well, is that those companies are often uh, US-based uh, or European-based. And um, that is for where they make their policy. <laughs> that is where they uh, decide how to approach... Uh, takedowns removals uh, etc uh, worldwide um, and we've seen that lead to um, some very serious problems um, I can refer here to the to the issue that uh, uh, basically the role that Facebook played in um, in a genocide in, in in Myanmar for example where insufficient action was taken um, when that platform was basically used to to fuel uh, hate speech and um, and kind of like incite violence against the Rohingya population. So <laughs> the short answer to a very complex question is is yes. Uh, this is definitely a, um, a, a risk, and it, it's well, it's more than a risk. I think actually it's it's a fact, and it's something that we're seeing play out uh, in many different ways at the moment.
3: Mm, that's fascinating. Um. What I was looking at um, in relation to what you just said is, is how Twitter know in their policy, for example, that they look at the language of the tweet, but they do not attempt, this is quotation marks, they do not attempt to determine all potential interpretations of the content or its intent. And my question is whether this can actually work as a policy, uh, especially in situations like you mentioned in Myanmar, when definitions of offensive language are coming from silicon valley from from the us i mean is there yeah is there a better approach to this issue like can uh, a look at uh, can they actually divorce um the language from the interpretation
2: no <laughs> so context is everything right uh with speech uh um, and um, just the way that, that the way we, we, we say things in, in spoken language right how intonation uh, makes a huge difference between a joke and an insult for example um, uh, context means also everything in the way that that written language uh, should be should be interpreted and uh, there are many kind of like Local nuances uh, in kind of word choice, etc., that that really kind of like require actual knowledge of not only the language but also the local context in which they operate. Um, and this is another kind of like shortcoming of content moderation as it's taking place right now, with often like too much of a distance, right, uh, from the context in which the the, the speech um, uh, is is uh, is being uttered uh versus the person who's who's reviewing it or even worse, uh the technology that is reviewing it, uh, which has huge difficulty quite often actually in, in, in picking up on nuances nuances such as sarcasm uh or uh, particular um local uh language uh etc. So yeah um context is everything and that is just something that 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 requires sufficient investment in fact. From these platforms to make sure that they they get it as right as possible.
3: That's a really interesting question, and I think points to the future essentially. Like what we think the legacy of this uh, this huge incident of Twitter banning Trump will actually be. It, will this change the way that these platforms moderate in the ways that you suggest? Like, are they going to invest? Uh, in this technology. And I'd like to ask you more about that, actually. Um, so, you know, you mentioned a few ways that the technology itself is is not necessarily um, apt at picking up certain language. Uh, and also that they haven't invested, for example, in local or regional enforcement teams. Um, at the moment, they only have so-called diverse oversight boards in, the, in Silicon Valley or wherever they're based in the US. So would you see them or in the future, would you like to see them invest more in this technology, and how do you think that they could feasibly do that
2: well more investment is is absolutely key I think it, it it's only justified right I mean uh, these companies make an enormous amount of profit uh, off their platforms um, so they should also actually make a realistic and, 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 and proper investment in making sure that that it's actually a platform that can be used by anyone who wants to use it. Um, And just writing up nice uh, community standards or community guidelines, and and however you want to call the terms of service uh, that these platforms use is not enough. It's about meaningfully enforcing them and um, enforcing them in a way that it's also possible for those whose speech has been removed (laughs) to actually second guess uh, those decisions. And here I come back to what I said before about lack of transparency. Right now, it's really unclear what is being taken down and why, and then also how you can actually challenge any takedown. So, as with anything, there should be clear procedures um, on like how <laughs> clear procedures how you can actually challenge that uh, with fixed timelines, um, making insightful like how uh, as an individual or an organization for that matter, because um, organizations are being deplatformed as well, um, you can actually have have a conversation as to like why your speech was taken down.
3: Thank you so much for that, Nanny. I've just got one last question for you as we finish off, uh, which is a little look into the future. Could you share with us your thoughts on what the next big challenges or milestones are facing the digital rights movement? based on what we've talked about but also your own personal experience with the digital freedom fund and your work around that what should be looking what we be looking out for in the next few years
2: so uh, i often sound uh, like a very boring lawyer when when i say this but um i always keep on insisting on returning to the human rights framework that we have uh, f- for many of these conversations um Human rights should be at the basis of, of all the decisions that we're going to be making about how to deal with these spaces, these online spaces, um, making sure that um, they are um, they're, they're available <laughs> for everyone uh, to have their voice heard and uh, not have uh, a very vocal um, and dominant, powerful group Basically, push out uh, other voices. So, um, those who traditionally in our societies uh, are endowed with 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 less power. Um, so, here I am referring again to, to to marginalized groups, to racialized groups whose whose speech is being policed um, excessively uh, compared uh, to to others. Um, I think so. I think that besides kind of like grappling with the the really kind of like fundamental, basic questions, right about like who should be in charge, Uh, how are we going to create transparency, what are the mechanisms that we're going to create. We have to kind of really make sure that all of those setups that we come up with uh, really um, are capable of serving all communities um, and all constituencies uh, that we want to have involved um, in debates about our societies and about our democracy.
3: Thank you so much, Nanny. That's given us a lot to think about. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing all your insights on this. There's still so many questions and I hope that we'll see some action and some positive action
0: from these companies in the future.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It was really lovely to speak with you.
0: Well, thank you for joining us on this episode of Oxford Policy Pod as we dug into some of the complex challenges surrounding free speech and social media. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to Oxford Policy Pod wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at Oxford Policy Pod underscore and on Twitter at Oxford Policy Pod. The executive producer for this season of OPP is Leanne ryan Hume, and this episode was produced by Manuel Asuero, researched by Laura Katcha, and edited by Alicia Ozlan. We'll see you back in two weeks.